Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is USA Today bestselling author and Shirley Jackson Award winner, Sarah Rose Etter. Her new book is Ripe, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Sarah, welcome to the program. Ah, thanks for having me. Happy 250. That's a big number. Yeah, thanks. You know, I started this right before COVID hit and I had no idea it was going to last this long. And then as you are well aware, podcasts became necessary for promotion, et cetera. And and here we are. Yeah. How's it feel to hit 250? Do you like feel different about it or do you feel like a pro now? (laughs) Well, um, the biggest difference for me is that it's just, um, you know, I don't, I'm not having to, to work very hard at it anymore. Folks are, are soliciting me instead of me soliciting them. And that's so much fun, unless it's someone like you, who it's like, you know, there's a book out there that I really, really, really have to read. And the only way that I'll have time to read it is if you come on to talk to me. So thank you so much for doing that. No, thanks for having me and also being so flexible. I know my schedule has been crazy the last couple of weeks, Um, but congratulations. That's a really 250 episodes. I don't know if I've done 250 of anything. Right. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) You know, it's fun to talk about books at work. Why not? Um, Yeah. yeah, Well, um, it's an honor to have you here. And Sarah, before we get into your book, we talked about this a little bit offline, but um, how have you been? How's the move been from Texas to California and San Francisco to LA and $2 radio to Scribner? (laughs) It's a lot of, it's a lot of moves now that you put it like that. Um, the move from Austin to LA has been really wonderful, mostly because I have a lot of, lot of writing friends mm-hmm. here. And so that's been super helpful. Also, one of my best friends, uh, Tommy Pico, is out here. So that's been really good for me. I actually wrote Ripe with him on Zoom mm-hmm. because it was during lockdown and we both really needed like a motivator. And so we would get on Zoom and then go on mute and turn our cameras off and write for a couple hours and then come back and talk and then go back in. And so... Um, just being closer to him is, is really great for me. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really happy here. There's a lot less political drama than was happening in Austin. I was living pretty close to the Capitol. So I felt like I was kind of front and center for a lot of intense things. Um, so there's a lot less of that happening here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's great. You know, um, Tommy's, uh, one of his first collections was published by my friend, Chris Tonelli, who you met several years ago he was my um business partner with the north carolina book festival um his publisher birds llc so that's really cool well um thank you and and by the way you know talking about scribner really quickly simon and schuster has been on a a tear this year i think um scribner is a division of simon and schuster listeners if you're unaware uh i think maybe four or five of my top books of the year are published by them so far um which is unusual Yeah, yeah Yeah, I feel really lucky. I, I, you know, I think I've had like, I don't want to jinx it, but kind of a charmed publishing experience in the sense that everyone who's found my work and decided to publish it has been never tried to make it into anything that it wasn't. And I think that was what I was really, really grateful for with both $2 Radio and Scribner is that they didn't try to change it into anything that it wasn't going to already be in a way. Um, they, obviously we went through edits and stuff like that, but they didn't try to make it less bleak and they gave it a beautiful cover and title and like everything. So 
yeah, I feel very spoiled. I hear a lot of like horror stories and I've been so happy and so well taken care of with every publisher. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I'm like, I don't have to cross my fingers or like bless myself. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're in Times Square now. I think you made it, Sarah. Um, <laughs> Well, um, let's now dive into this excellent new novel, Ripe. First, uh, Sarah, can you just take a moment to set the novel up for our listeners? Yeah, I usually just call it the bell jar in Silicon Valley, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a woman with severe depression working in Silicon Valley, and she's pretty overcome by all these systems that are happening around her that she feels like she has no control over. So it's like capitalism, the housing crisis, the climate crisis, um, the pandemic is coming. It's not a pandemic book. It's just a kind of a lead up to the pandemic. Um, and so, and then she finds herself unexpectedly pregnant. So it's sort of a pressure cooker in the vein of like a parasite or an uncut gems. I was kind of thinking about both of those mm-hmm. movies as I was writing this because things just escalate, escalate, escalate until you are just like almost unbearable. Um, and so I did, I definitely feel like it's, in conversation with those two in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would agree with that, Sarah. And um, our listeners know that I lived in San Francisco and managed a bookstore there for many, many years. Um, One detail that jumped out at me that I want to ask you about, what is the smell of a train in San Francisco? The smell of a train? Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends what time of day. It depends which train you're on. Are you on the bullet? down to the Silicon Valley or are you going on the bar? I mean, it really depends. The smell of a train is going to vary. It's been a while since I, since I lived there and rode the trains, but the streets still smell the same. I can tell you that. Um, well, this novel of course takes place in San Francisco. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier offline, I, I moved away from there right before Twitter X now, I guess, uh, moved to, to market street. Um, and now the divide between rich and poor, which has always been wide in San Francisco, seems so much wider. Um, mm-hmm. What is the scene in San Francisco now, or specifically, what is the scene in San Francisco in your novel? Yeah, I was in Silicon Valley for about a year, um, and I realized pretty quickly that it, it kind of wasn't for me. Uh, mm-hmm. The energy there was just really jangly and I feel I'm really sensitive kind of to my surroundings and I just felt I would go to work every day and see all of these people making a ton of money and then I would come home in my neighborhood it just looked like there were a lot of people in pain and I I also kept thinking like even on a regular Saturday people just walking past these like awful scenes to go have their nice day in Dolores Park and you're like can you not see all of what's are you just completely able to block out everything that's happening. And this is just like a day for you in the park. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really wrap my head around it. And I still, I still can't because I think when I wrote this, it was a San Francisco novel, but I think now you could pretty much place it in any city in America and you would be dealing with most of these same issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but for me, I mean, I definitely got there after the tech boom, which I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't really think it was over, but it was definitely starting to head towards the like, tail end of that um and so I just started to think about the things I was seeing and I would call home and ask my dad for advice about what I was seeing whether it was like making business decisions or not being able to reconcile how beautiful the place was with what I was seeing happening Mm -hmm. to the people there 
Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he would just tell me, you know, write all this stuff down and you're going to write a novel about it one day. And I never want to write a, I never wanted to write a San Francisco novel ever. And I do think if he hadn't asked me to write this, I probably would have just done something else because it does feel like kind of done to death. There's like so many tech novels, um, and people taking this on, but that those all seem to be dealing with like the impact of technology Mm -hmm. or, um, people who eventually just get paid enough money to like sell out and buy in and they didn't really seem to grapple with the human aspect of things and so I had to give myself some permission to you know one set the book in a time and a place because most of my fiction is very surreal and it's not set anywhere it's just exists Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that was a harder thing for me to get over in a way yeah absolutely and um We'll elaborate on some things you just said in a little while, but first, uh, in the tech industry, um, prevalent in the Bay Area, of course, uh, you write about the difference between believers with a capital B and non-believers. What is the difference between believers and non-believers? I think it might be the people that when you go to work, they really seem like they love work mm-hmm. and they're just like all in and mm-hmm. you might maybe not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's kind of those people where you kind of look to your left and you're like, wow, you just live for this. You want to work 90 hours a week. You want to sort of obliterate yourself and work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those were kind of the believers to me. Uh, You know, one thing I do think about all the time, though, is like, is that just her perception? Are Are these people also going home and having the same problems and challenges, but she just can't ask them because she's afraid she'll get like found out, you know, because you can see she's surrounded by friends who are also stressed out and working in high stress jobs. And so, you know, it is a good question, right? I remember in Silicon Valley thinking there were a lot of people there who were excited mm-hmm. about working this hard and this insane pace and it invigorated them and I felt very outside that because I felt like I was just like lost mm-hmm. entirely um and it was devoid of meaning for me it, you know in a way yeah and I think you just answered my next question which was uh which one are you Sarah believer or not? <laughs> I think it depends on the day I mean here's the thing it's I think you know the father in the book is largely modeled on my dad and I do think there's some truth in you know, some days I don't want to go to work and then I have to remember like, you know, this affords you mm-hmm. all of the things that you have in your life. Mm-hmm. That yeah. matters. It matters to be able to pay rent and have health care. Those things are really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there is also, you know, of course there are days where you're just like, I don't feel like it today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we won't go down that rabbit hole, Sarah, but that's a whole other conversation I've been having with folks lately. Um, you write a lot about people being sucked into their screens, uh, their phones, etc. Um, I don't think that there are many people who would disagree with criticisms of this part of our culture in 2023, but nothing changes. Um, will this ever change, Sarah, do you think? Or are we just going to be critical of these uh, devices and screens while cycling through media loops ourselves until these devices are finally implanted in our retinas or whatever we're heading for? I think it's the second answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, I do think about this sometimes it's like before mm-hmm. they released Splenda, they had to test it on humans for like 10 years. And mm-hmm. with tech, it was just like, release the internet, <laughs> retarget everyone, take mm-hmm. their data. Uh, and in some ways, you know, I think that horse has already left 
the horse barn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's some things you can't take back. Right. And I yeah. do think it from working in tech for a really long time, you know, I've definitely worked on products that we couldn't even launch in England because they already had, you know, tech protections in place for employees or for, for people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are certain things that happen in America in terms of tech that like can't happen anywhere else. Cause we haven't regulated it. Mm -hmm. Um, and even when they pull Mark Zuckerberg up in front of Congress, it's like, I don't, I hate him obviously, but like, it's kind of not his fault. Like right. he, he literally, it's unregulated industry and he cashed in on it. And mm -hmm. then the government like wants to penalize him and they still haven't changed any of the things that he cashed in on. Right. So it's like, give us some of that money and then go back to doing what you were doing. You know, that's kind of all it was. And yeah, it's it's something that I think is too late to really change. Um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting if um if folks ever wake up to the the consequences that they're numb to, but we'll see what happens there. Um, I I do think, you know, after I think part of the reason I became fascinated with it is after my father passed away, my mm -hmm. brother and I were like deeply grieving, mm -hmm. and but we would pick up our phones. And the feeling would stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, how powerful is that device if it can take like the worst feeling I've ever felt and sort of obliterate it? And I saw it happen to him too. You know what I mean? We would just like pick up a Game Boy or a Switch or a phone. Mm -hmm. And it was a way of just completely wiping out this giant feeling. And that kind of feels like what I saw in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Thank you so much, Sarah. Listeners. We're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Sarah Rose Etter. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Sarah Rose, editor, author of Ripe, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Um, Sarah, I wanted to ask you a question about formatting. Can you tell us about the chapters that open with definitions and why you chose to format Ripe in this way? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes when you're writing a novel, you need a structure to help you keep going. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that I put in there for me ends up staying in and some of it gets taken out. And, you know, sometimes it's just me like giving myself guide guidance to get up the hill, you mm -hmm. know, so that I have a way to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but for the definitions, I wanted to, most of the flashbacks that give you perspective into Cassie and why she's making the decision that, that she makes and her, you know, experience with money and love and her parents all of that is meant to serve sort of as memory works. Mm -hmm. So I, I liked the idea of these words giving her almost like a triggered flashback to mm -hmm. a moment in time that was related to what was happening in the present. Mm -hmm. um, sort of like when you smell a certain scent, 
and you're just taken back to like, you know, your high school boyfriend who was wearing, like wearing whatever that stinky axe cologne was that all the boys were wearing back then. Um, I wanted it to work like that. And I don't love backstory a lot. So I wanted there to just be enough for you to understand her and have context. Um, and so structuring it that way helped me because I didn't have to make it linear. I didn't have to give you like her whole progression through her entire life. I could just give you exactly as much context as you needed. Mm. Um, and so that's pretty much where they came from. Uh, and, you know, I guess we could have taken them out during editing, but no one told me to. So I just loved them. It. Nice. <laughs> Sometimes your editor is like, get rid of this. And you're like, yeah, I should. Yeah. Uh, but no one ever said that about the definitions. So they just stated. Good, good, good. And, you know, side note, there are so many things uh, in my uh, lifetime that I'm happy to be just a little bit old enough to have missed out on in the the stinky ex cologne phase uh, that folks went through as one <laughs> of them. Um, well, let's talk about the office of Voyager, the company that uh, our protagonist Cassie works for. Uh, my first question is who thought that open office floor plans were a good idea and why do we continue to pretend like this is okay? This is like an existential crisis that I have no answer to. Um, I think we did it. I mean, why did we do it? I don't know. That's a great mm -hmm. question. I, we should Google that right now. Okay. I feel like it was supposed to improve productivity or maybe it was cheaper than mm -hmm. giving everyone a cubicle. It's mm -hmm. here's the thing. It sucks either way. Either you're in a cube and you can still hear people. Mm -hmm. They just can't see you, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. Or you're in an open office floor plan, which is also awful. I just think there's no winning. Right. <laughs> I don't I don't know what the right answer is here. But I will say, uh, you know, it definitely made you feel a little bit more monitored and a little mm -hmm. bit more, you know, watched. Yeah. 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 I had to leave corporate America and manage bookstores to get an office with a door again. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'm thankful for. Well, um. Sarah, what does Voyager do? Does the Voyager in your novel have anything to do with the uh, bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange of the same name? No, I didn't. I tried really hard to pick something that wasn't a company name. I just wanted, but companies are just named after a kind of more what I always saw, which is them sort of hiding these nefarious data mining companies behind names that were like generally benign or like seemed aspirational or hopeful or kind. Um, and it is a version of like, you know, we're in an era of conspicuous wealth. And I think it's the first time in history where people have been hiding their money by how they dress. It's mm -hmm. the first time that people don't want to be seen as wealthy mm -hmm. in a real way. Like they want some of the status symbols, but they mostly want to like find a way to obscure it. And I think some of these tech companies, when they name themselves, it's very similar. They want to like obscure what they're actually doing by calling it something mm -hmm aspirational and brilliant um but i didn't know that was a company name i was trying really hard not to pick yeah, an existing no. company <laughs> well you know it's hard to find an unused name these days but yeah the the folks um dressing to blend in that happens here in aspen all the time and it's like you're, you're in aspen you're not hiding anything you know but <laughs> um I still appreciate the fast fashion decision. Well, um, to elaborate on something you were speaking of earlier, can you tell us a little bit more about Cassie's relationship uh, with her father? She's very close to her father. Uh, she calls him all the time, not so much with her mother. Yeah, I think that her mother is probably like not able to love her in the way that she wants to be loved. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it harder for her. 
Um, and then I think her father, he's pretty clear about what's going to make him proud and what he thinks she needs to do. And so she's a little bit more ready to like work to earn his affection, I guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, and also too, you can kind of see when she finally accepts the job at Voyager, how that's another example of the CEO at Voyager kind of calls her and pressures her, pressures her into accepting the job. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar again of like having this kind of male figure that's tied to money and business telling you what to do and like guiding, guiding you in quotes. Um, but, you know, reality is she's just at a point in her life where she's still accepting that as, as the way to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, as I was writing this book, like I said, you know, I wrote this shortly after my father passed away and we went into COVID isolation. And mm-hmm. so I definitely also wanted to kind of save some of my moments with him in a way. And so the father character definitely took on more of that kind of human rounded aspect, mm-hmm. because I think I was going through that myself, you know, and I think that relationship got much more built out as a result. Yeah, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And it definitely read um, true to life. Well, why do you think, um, you know, speaking of the mother and father characters in this book, why do you think marriages end up like this so often with one kind of <clears throat> lovable, aloof person and one person who seems to be miserable existing in the world? Do you mean for her parents? Yeah. Or for her really? Yeah, I mean. Well, sure, either one, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Uh-huh. I think in our 30s, we finally start to shed some of the models that we were raised with mm-hmm. and realize that they're not maybe healthy or they're not as progressive as they felt like they were when our parents raised us with them. And mm-hmm. I think her relationship to capitalism is the same, right? Like she's been taught that if you do everything right, and you get a degree and you get a job, then you're going to get a house and everything's going to be fine and you're going to have security. And she's realizing that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for relationships, right? Her only model for a marriage is two people who probably haven't done a lot of work on themselves and they aren't like really prioritizing a healthy relationship. And so of course she would fall into a relationship with someone unavailable who isn't entirely meeting her needs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're all kind of asking those questions about the relationships we were raised around, right? Like mm-hmm. marriage is tough. It's a really hard thing to do. Um, and I think for a generation of parents that weren't going to therapy or learning how to work on themselves or ask for ha- to have their needs met, right. You could sometimes find yourself in a situation where, you know, that's that's how they were talking to each other mm-hmm. um and i think she's you know toward the end starting to realize that too yeah for sure um to switch gears for a moment sarah how much research did you do on black holes and listeners uh, cassie the protagonist lives with a black hole always somewhere uh in her periphery uh, a lot. I jo- I always joke that I'm like the most fact-checked fiction writer in America. I actually would love anyone to challenge me on that because $2 <laughs> Radio fact-checked the hell out of the Book of X. Uh, we did another round of fact, a lot of fact-checking with Scrivener. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did a lot of research. The black hole was definitely the hardest element to write just because we have so little understanding of it mm-hmm. in real life. And there were so many times where I was like banging my head against the computer screen being like, why did I fucking do this? Why, why did I think I could turn this into a fictional element? Because most of the edits I got were like, could you dial up the black hole? Could the black hole do X, Y? And so like in multiple drafts, it would have different rules of behavior and engagement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them felt too twee. And I really did want the black hole to like symbolize these feelings that all of us have inside that are endless and bottomless. Um, And so, yeah, but a ton of research. I mean, I was reading, you know, academic papers around how, you know, black holes are so complicated that they're one of the only things in science or or, or physics that um, we had to create language for that was like common words, right? Because we can't, we literally can't wrap our heads around what's going on. Um, and so that fascinated me for sure. Uh, and then as I was finishing the book, we kept like releasing new research on them. Mm. And so the ending of the book, you know, I think when we, that happened right when we, or when they had announced that there were likely wormholes in some Mm. black holes Mm. and that really, you know, I was rewriting the ending a lot because I was trying to keep up with the research Mm. as it was coming out. Um, Right. So yeah, a lot of research, definitely. And I, I still don't feel like an expert, but I feel like you could, you know, ask me some basic questions and I could probably get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And listeners, for another work of fiction deals with uh, black holes and string theory, check out Skippy Dies by Paul Murray, a great um, Irish author. The book's like 10, 15 years old, but fantastic. Um, well, Sarah, what is most like a black hole, a dead-end job, a bad relationship, or a toxic family? That's hard. I think they're kind of tied. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a poly. I think they're tied. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my dad used to always say like mm-hmm. your job, your relationship and where you live are like the three biggest parts of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you're experiencing upheaval in one of those, you should try to keep the other two stable, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're going through a major breakup, it's probably not the exact right time to like start a new job. <laughs> If you're moving, it's probably not a really good time to get a new job, right? Mm. Um, And this is a character where like all three of these things are just sucking the life out of her. And so she can't really see a path forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Cassie has a fake self that she channels, uh, mostly in professional situations, sometimes in awkward social situations. Um. Is the black hole more present to real Cassie or fake Cassie? Or is it an equal opportunity black hole? I think it's equal opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I do think like, you know, her fake self, I, I'm i curious about this. I, I feel like I still do it mm-hmm. in order to be a leader of a team at work, in mm-hmm. order to like have the job that I have you do have to show up a certain way and so I think she's just kind of calling that out mm. um, and some of that was cu- happening because we were in lockdown and I was working remotely and just kind of thinking like I'm watching all these insane things happen mm-hmm. like people are dying mm-hmm. and we went into the Black Lives Matter protests and there was a lot of police brutality in Austin that was happening like right outside my window because I lived across the street from the APD Mm-hmm. um headquarters and then you know so it was all these and then row was overturned right and then you're just let's go back to work get back on the zoom <laughs> and yeah. it's like wait a minute though let's mm-hmm. think right. you know i manage a team of all women and like you know i'm like row just got overturned wait can we take a beat like do we need to just like all of us live in states where that means we no longer have reproductive rights mm-hmm. could we take five or right. are we just gonna keep churning out the work you know and so I think that's a lot. I think that's in the book a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The goal is to to have a job where you don't have to have a fake self, right? And still make a lot of money. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think that is the goal, but I also think we have to be realistic. Like I, I do think there is a limit to that, right? Because yeah. if your real self is an asshole and you're making right. other people yeah. uncomfortable and you, you suck, then right. like maybe you shouldn't be your real self at work right. <laughs> or you shouldn't be at my job, you know? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. It depends what your real self is. If you're real, what I do say to my team is like, you know, if you're having an off day, if you're going through something big, like you're going through a wedding or a death in the family or, right, I, I try to factor all of those things into what you're working on so that you you can have a, a life and also do your best work, right? And that both of those things can exist. We just have to all strive for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, you write a scene where Cassie is having a panic attack. Is writing a panic attack easy, hard, or equal to writing about other frames of mind? Uh, certain scenes, I mean, I definitely, so I outline a lot, and then I write the scenes down on individual note cards. And when I sit down to write every day, uh, I'll just pull a card and write a scene. Rather than doing word counts, um, writing a scene feels better for me because I think it's easy to like, if you say I'm going to write a thousand words a day, you can write 500 of those suck. And you just mm -hmm. did it to like get through it. Whereas like for me, if I'm like, okay, you just got to write a good scene today, mm -hmm. then it feels like, okay, maybe it's 3000 words, maybe it's 700 words. You just need to do exactly the justice that this moment in time needs. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of how this was written. And I think why some of these scenes maybe feel rounded mm -hmm. and compressed. Um, so when there's a scene like a panic attack or anything that's going to be very emotional and I know like maybe I'm going to have to go to a really tender place inside of myself. I kind of mark that scene. And I know on that day, like I probably should write that scene on a weekend, extra self-care just so that, because it's hard sometimes, right? Some of the scenes like break my heart when I write them. Mm -hmm. um, the panic attack didn't break my heart as much because I feel so close to that as just a way of life of, I have a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so that one felt easy. Some mm -hmm. of this, especially like with the father or, um, you know, the final scene, sometimes if it breaks the reader's heart, it'll break mine too. And so I just have to be a little bit more careful with myself on those days. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Um, finally, uh, and listeners, we could talk about this book for much, much longer, but our time is running short. This is a book I'm going to be thinking about for a very long time. Uh, but Sarah, my last question involves religion and the concept of God, capital G. Uh, this is not a religious novel necessarily. Or maybe it is in the way that it's also a Silicon Valley novel and a novel about pregnancy and drugs and San Francisco and family and friendships and sex and astrophysics and all of these other things. But um, Cassie does question the concept of God more than once. And there are rosary beads and churches and religious protesters in this novel. It's definitely a theme that is present. Um, what is Cassie's relationship with religion in this novel? And what does it tell us about her and the way that her brain works? I think whenever you have a novel where someone becomes unexpectedly pregnant mm. and might be weighing out abortion, it kind of, it ties to religion because so much of the argument against reproductive health is based on Christianity and religion. And so I think she's grappling with that in a big way, right? Because the biggest implication is that if you have an abortion or if you consider having an abortion, you're anti 
religion, you're going to hell, you know? And so I think that's weighing on her, even if she's not religious, I think, you know, eternal damnation, <laughs> even if you're not, even if you're not religious, like if someone threatens you with eternal damnation, like you're definitely gonna be like, well, wait a minute, I need to, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, think this through. Mm -hmm. And it gets complicated, right? Because like, I went to CCD as a kid and there are parts of the 10 commandments that you're like, yeah, that's cool to teach a kid. Like they shouldn't steal from people and they shouldn't like, you know, steal their neighbor's wife. Right. There's some things in there where you're like, okay, some of this is just like, you know, good to know and it, it probably a good way of living. But then it gets to another part where it's like, you know, it's forcing judgment on our unruly bodies. And every person I know that has ovaries, is doing math after they have sex every time. And ever since Roe was overturned, that's only doubled. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's only more intense now. And so mm -hmm. what I mean by that is it's a really hard position to be in as a person with ovaries. Uh, if you end up pregnant and you've done everything you can to avoid that, and then you know you shouldn't have a kid because you don't have the resources, you don't have a support system, then on top of that, if you decide you aren't ready to have a child and mm -hmm. it breaks your heart to say that then you get to have eternal damnation thrown mm -hmm. in your face while you make a really hard decision mm -hmm. um and it was important to me to like show someone who was willing to admit that they weren't ready for a child and not have it be like an 18 year old crossing state lines hiding it from their parents like this is a grown-up woman who could probably pull it off if she really tried but she would end up being a single mom she would probably have a kid that didn't have a really great family structure. Um, and so that, what does that look like? And that of course is going to lead into, you know, the religious right and how they position reproductive freedom. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's, you know, I like to have a common thread running through a book and that one I felt like needed to be there because it is so much a part of the anti-reproductive rights rhetoric. Yeah, absolutely. It's not what you asked me, but I'm telling <laughs> yeah no 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 I don't yeah I don't it think is, she's yeah. like religious I just think no, she's a yeah. heavy decision for her and so philosophically that bleeds in yeah and I think that the thing that makes it unique and the reason that I drew um that I'm drawing our listeners attention to it is because you have novels that are Silicon Valley novels drug novels astrophysics novels that aren't necessarily grappling with religion at the same time <laughs> um yeah but I think that's great and um Sarah, this is going to be one of the best books of the year. I have no doubt. We've already sold out of it once here at Explore Booksellers. We're about to sell out of it again. We only have one. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. That means a lot to me. I feel honestly so lucky. Everything has happened in like the last like 12 days or 15 days. So I just, I haven't really processed anything, but I do want to say I feel so grateful because there are people like you who have been just like early champions of this work that I get to do and I couldn't keep doing it without that. And so I'm just so, so thankful. Absolutely. And we're thankful that you're writing the books, Sarah. And um, I know that that you're going to keep doing it and that you've got great things ahead of you. And I look forward to seeing what comes next. Listeners, I have been speaking with Sarah Rose, editor, author of Ripe, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thanks Listen. for having me again. I have to go back yeah. to work now. Absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day and have a you good You too. Bye, Chase. Bye. Once again, I would like to thank Sarah Rose Edder for joining me. Copies of Ripe can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com with 
free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.